Amen. 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 With the horns now. Amen. With the rhythm now. Hey. Amen. We're going to, I know you guys have been going through Ephesians, but we're actually going to look at John, the Gospel of John tonight. And um, if you have, you have your sheet here, it's John 2. This is one of the most uh, fun passages of Scripture that you can possibly uh, read. And uh, just a little side note, G- Jesus addresses His mother in this passage as, as woman. Uh, and that can sound degrading or derogatory, but that was in, in some ways, like Chris and I were talking about earlier, it's in some ways saying like, just ma'am. Uh, th- there was a sort of a linguistic thing back then where that was not as offensive as, as it is to our, our ears. And so this is, uh, this is God's word to you tonight, and I'm so very excited to, to get to bring it to you tonight. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. And when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, and I love imagining a Jewish woman saying this, Do whatever he tells you. Okay? Now there are six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. And so they took it. And when the master of the feast tasted the wine, now be- the water now become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. The master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Okay, Uh, one of the things I do at my church before I pray, uh, as I tell everyone, it's very easy when somebody bears a mic and starts praying, it's very easy to disengage and just let me pray. Um, I really don't want you to do that. I I want you to ask God with me silently um, as I pray. I want you to ask God to bring you joy tonight. Okay? So I'm about to say, let's pray. And I'm going to spend about 30 seconds in silence with you all to where it feels awkward. And then I'm going to start praying to God, but I want you to pray with me. Okay? That God will bring you joy. Ready? Let's pray. Father, it's so good to be in the presence of your people. Brothers and sisters that I have never met, but I feel like I know. And I ask, Lord, that you would speak to them the words of eternal life, that they would believe in you, that I would believe in you. Um, That we 
um, would be at rest in You. And that we would know that You fill all the things up that we go after for joy that aren't You. And even in that instinct, Lord, and that instinct to go after other things, other lovers, You're there. And so, Lord, draw us to Yourself tonight that You would, by Your Spirit, uh, pour out Yourself onto Your people and that they would be encouraged, that they would be lifted up. In Christ's name, Amen. So I know I am in uh, Steph Curry country tonight. Um, But I accepted LeBron James into my heart about 12 years ago. And it has not been an easy road. And, uh, you know, every time he makes it to the finals, and you got to be honest, he's made it to a bunch of them. Um, I will notice myself, even if they're up big in the fourth quarter and and I know they're going to win, I'll notice myself sort of not allowing myself to feel the joy or the excitement of that game um, that they're about to win. And I began to ask myself, as, I, as this became a, a reoccurring thing in my life, why do I do that? Why won't I allow myself to feel joy and desire in the moment? Why am I always waiting for the shoe to drop? And you know, m- many of you might say, well, it's because the game's not over and you're just waiting. Um, but I think that something much deeper is going on on a holistic level with that desire there that all of us feel. Even in the very best things that we can experience in this world, we're kind of waiting for the catch. And I think part of that is that we don't trust joy. We're skeptical of it. We don't trust our desires in some ways. A guy named Dan Allender says this, When we address the issue of desire, we are in the depths of the core war of the human heart, the reality of our own heart's awareness that our beloved is not yet home. So I don't know what you're like in the presence of immense beauty. But I'm terrified of it. Uh, Whether it's a person or a landscape. I was uh, on a hike with Chris today. And it was absolutely gorgeous. And I felt myself just wanting to move move along. um, Because it terrifies me. And at the same time, I long for it. And one of the things that I think is the most unchristian instinct that we have is to not allow ourselves to sit in that longing. Now that's part of what I think this passage is about. Can your joy, can your desire for pleasure coexist with God? Um, What do you actually think it's going to be like to encounter Jesus? In reality, um, that's what this passage is is getting at. I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but uh, have you ever wondered why it's really hard to kind of open yourself up to God, even if you are a self-professed Christian? It's really hard to open up yourself to God when when things are going really well in your life, when you're in an intoxicating reciprocal relationship that's fun, um, when you're doing well in in your classes. Uh, It's hard because whether you're religious or not, this is the testimony of the Bible about us. If I actually open myself up to God in the midst of the things that I really, really desire, He might mess it up. And uh, here's the point. 
the Bible says that we have this one base instinct towards God. That we all sort of think He's out to rob us of joy. And that's why I think Jesus chooses this particular bizarre miracle as the first sign of what He's like and who He is. As the first example in the Gospel of John... Um, of, of what it's like to, to encounter Him and to stand before Him face to face. We just sing about that um, when the clouds are rolled back. And here's what we're going to talk about tonight. If you want to allow yourself to feel the joy and the pain that you encounter in this life, you'll realize, you never realize that Jesus is the giver and source of that joy. And what will happen is that you'll go looking for Him and all sorts of other things and it'll always feel like the wine is about to run out. It'll always feel like the joy is about to end. Point one, Jesus is the giver or bringer of joy. I want you to look back at your passage at verses 1 through 5. And I want you to think about what's happening. Here's the context. Uh, there's a wedding party. You know, in the ancient world, weddings were incredible. They, they celebrated them for like six days in a row. You had to like gear up to party. They'd probably put most of us to shame. But the, the wedding party is about to die, and it's about to die because the wine is running out. Okay? Now, I want you to think about that for a moment. Verse 11 says that this was the first sign that Jesus did to manifest His glory... His weightiness, the meaning of why He came. Cana was not a very important town. It was kind of a backwoods town. And weddings were a huge deal in a small town. And so running out of wine would have been a major no-no in this, in this culture. But, you know, and you'd be shamed by your community. But I, I want you to realize something. Uh, Jesus does take time uh, to care about the minute details of your life. He's basically saving a couple from some cultural shame. And this is the first sign of who He is. Now, I want you to think about that for your life for a second. Because He cares about the intricate details of your life. Like your class schedule. And your relationships. And we often don't think that God wants to be bothered by our problems. And that's sort of what it seems like He says to His mom when He says... Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. And we'll get back to that hour part. But then he actually puts things in motion sort of behind her back to fix the problem in our passage. And this is just a very uh, quick side note, uh, an astute thing that a, that a preacher said about this passage, is that what Jesus told the servants to do to fix the problem made no sense whatsoever. That they were supposed to carry these huge jars down to where the water was and get water and, and bring it back up. And I just, want, I just want you to know, if you're a Christian here today, that is much of what the Christian life can feel like. It doesn't make much sense at first. Okay? Think about, like, have you ever tried to explain, if you're, if you're a Christian, what you do when you go to a gathering like this to a non-Christian? <laughs> Or like what you do at church. So you're, t- you know, you're telling me you, you go uh, listen to an ancient book be explained. And you practice rituals that remind you that your God uh, died. That doesn't seem like it's addressing my problems. That doesn't seem like it's speaking into the reality of what I 
experience every day. And what Jesus says is, trust me. Jesus is saying that He is the most developed taste in this world. Remember when you had your first cigarette? Y'all smoke cigarettes? Um, No one likes their first cigarette, right? You got to make yourself like it. Now think about think about this. Look, look. If if you are inclined bent in your natural way of life, your flesh to go against God, he is not going to taste good at first. But your soul knows that you need him. And what what Jesus is telling you in this first sign is that if you'll actually do what I say, you will experience true joy. But you have to develop your taste for me. Look at verse 6. Think about this as the camera lens zooming in. Now there's six stone water jars for the Jewish rites of purification. You know Wes Anderson films where he goes way in on an object. Jesus is telling us something and showing us something important. Jesus tells the servants to take these huge containers of purification water. Some scholars say it's about 120 gallons. Fill them up with water and go give some to the master of the feast. And that, that guy was in charge of making sure that the party was legit. And then what happens? That water was turned into good wine. It wasn't just... I, don't, I was asking him what you guys drink. Bud Light, you know, the cheap stuff. It wasn't Bud Light. Um, it was the good stuff that you, you serve at the beginning of parties so that you still have taste buds before you get tipsy and don't know what you're tasting. That's literally what Jesus is doing. I'm not encouraging you all to get drunk, but what I want you to see is that Jesus produces a lot of really incredible wine. Okay? That they could not all consume because it was so much. I want you to ask the question, why in the world would Jesus do that? And why would He use the these ceremonial jars to do it. It's significant. These are the representation of the law. And Jesus takes these old ceremonial cleansing jars and He fills them with some of the best drink that would revive any party. And Jesus is like that person that when the party is about to die, He goes out and gets another keg. I'm serious. And it's and it's not it's not you know the cheap stuff. It's it's the kind that like the snobs obsess over with the hops and the complex balance. Now think about this. Look, look. Why? Why would he do this? Why would he do this? It's because he's trying to scream to you. I did not come to rob you of joy. I came to bring it. You know, the old law represented good things. It represented holiness and purity. Some of you are about that in here. You're about being holy. In some ways, you, you've made yourself holy to separate yourself off from people and make you feel good about yourself. But at the end of the day, this is what's true about us. We don't like the law. 
because we know we can't live up to it. You don't know how, I think Lewis said this, you don't know how bad you are until you try to be really, really good. And that's why the law is a death trap without Christ because you can't make yourself want to obey it. You can't make yourself want deep down to obey God and Jesus has come to change that about you so that your instinct is for Him. So that you want to take a hit of Him. If I could encourage you to uh, read three chapters of the Bible for the rest of your life over and over and over again, it would be Genesis 1-3. through And the more you read it, the more it will become haunting to you because it's got you pegged. It's got me pegged. And what happens in Genesis 1-3, through when God told Adam and Eve not to eat of the tree of the garden, the knowledge of good and evil, that was a, that was a test that God was placing on all of humanity. And here was the test question that God was asking us. Do you believe that I'm going to be good to you? Do you believe that I'm going to give you the most joy that you could possibly have? And when Adam and Eve ate, they answered with a no. We don't. And we, along with Adam and Eve, we mistook God for the opposite of who He is. And Jesus is saying God is actually the bringer of the very joy I go looking for in my relationships and any pleasurable thing that I have in this life, whether it's food or drink or school or whatever. He's who fills those, fills those things up. And when Adam and Eve sinned, they forgot who God was. And what Jesus is doing with this first sign is He's speaking tenderly to that old part of our hearts that's there. It's a memory that you don't even have an experience of. That God has come to intoxicate you with Himself. When you have children, if you have children, it is revelatory of who God is. I used to live in Texas for 10 years. Um, and my daughter Ambrose, she, she loved to go outside. But she did not like to put on her shoes. And you can't go outside in Texas without shoes because of those freaking spurs that are everywhere. Um, and so I would tell Ambrose, you know, she'd really want to get out the door. And I'd say, all right, Rosie. I'd call her Rosie, too. Um, you got to put on your shoes before, before we go do that. And she gives me that look. That, like, why are you trying to rob me of joy? Look. And it's... So sad because you know as the parent, I'm actually trying to get you to have the maximum amount of joy that you can possibly have, but, but I'm seen as stepping in the way of your joy. And it hits you when you're a parent that this is what you do with God. And this is what I do with God. And look, I, I don't know uh, where you're at in your life right now. But at each stage, whether you're in your teens, 20s, 30s, 40s, God will prevent you from certain pleasures that you want to have. And if He does, that, that must mean that God is preventing me from this pleasure now so that I may enjoy it more fully when the time is right. And that might be in heaven for some of our pleasures. Do you trust that? Do you trust Him? 
that He's going to do everything in His power to bring you joy. Even now. I want you to look at verse 4. Um, what does Jesus mean when He says to His mother, My hour has not yet come. And I don't, I, I tried, you know, I was thinking really hard about y'all's dynamic. I've heard a lot about how you guys think through Chris and it has challenged me. So I don't want to assume anything right now. Okay? So if this is not how you think, that's fine. Um, but if you're single and you go to a friend's wedding, what are you, ty- what are you typically thinking about? I may miss this. I may miss it. Do you ever do you ever imagine do you ever imagine your own wedding? Here's what I think Jesus is doing, okay? I know that I know this is going to sound far-fetched. Come back to me for a second. I know this is going to sound far-fetched. I think Jesus is imagining his own wedding at this wedding. And the reason I think that is because the answer he gives his mom about his hour not being here. The hour in John always refers to the crucifixion. And Mary probably sensing the gravity of what he just said. He, she just says, do, do whatever he tells you. And I think what Jesus was realizing and feeling in that moment was the weight of what it's going to take to bring his people joy. Or to put it in tangible terms, what it's going to take to marry you. That is the church. He's going to have to die so that he can experience his wedding. And in his death, he not only fills our lives with joy, but he actually becomes the joy itself. And so if I can put it this way, he can only become the bridegroom of his people because he became the blood for his people. And in that way, he becomes the source of joy itself. And that's how you know if you've actually encountered Jesus. When you stop looking to your circumstances to give you what only He can give you. So very short, final point. Jesus is the source of joy. It's one thing for God to give you the things that you desire. It's another thing for Him to give you Himself. And that's what's being portrayed in this, in this miracle where Jesus is, is the most glorified, not, not nearly by amping up a party that was about to die, but the way in which he fixed the wine problem pointed to the way in which he's going to fix your problem. The humanity problem. When Jesus stood before his accusers and was about to be betrayed, at the Last Supper he said, This cup is the new covenant which was poured out for you. I'm not going to drink the fruit of the vine until I drink it on that day when it's new in the kingdom of God. And what he was saying is that in order for me to marry my people, I must give myself up for you. I must sacrifice for you. And by his blood, we taste his goodness. That's why if you're a Christian, you go to church, that's why you take the Lord's Supper. You are practicing what will be true at the end of the cosmos, which is you will walk down the aisle to God Himself. That's how it all ends. That we are collectively, as a church, seen as the bride of Christ Himself. So, thinking in terms of your life right now, um, is it possible that God knows what you want, 
more than you do. Does that make sense? How good do you think he is? Do you think he's going to withhold joy if you don't see him in just the right way? Are you waiting for him to expose you and say, see, I knew you weren't a Christian. I see what you do behind closed doors. I see what you do in secret. If you do, you will live your life afraid of God and afraid of others and you won't actually enjoy him. I used to love to ask students when they had a taste of uh, Reformed theology this question. What do you enjoy about Jesus? What do you like about Him? And when anyone gave me the answer, well, you see, in our sin, we can't really enjoy Him because we are depraved. Um, What that means is that their theology hasn't worked down into their hearts. And why can't we say, I love how Jesus interacts with me and how He interacts with you and how I sense His presence in other people and how tenderly He is and patient He is with me and my family. See, our cynicism protects us from going to that level with Jesus and many of us are afraid to say stuff like that because it scares us. And miracles like this scare us that he produced so much alcohol that he could probably get the entire campus drunk. And what he's screaming to all of us is, I'm better than you think. You've confused me for somebody else. So put on your shoes and let's go outside and have some fun. I had a friend back in the day who was an um, amazing athlete. He was a collegiate football player. And one time uh, we were talking about his life and he had lived with an addiction for a long time. And he said, you know, I'm always afraid, Matt, when I relapse with my addiction that God's going to allow someone to break my leg in a game to punish me for what I keep doing. And uh, I think we can all relate to that. In some sense, we believe in karma, you know. Um, And I think Jesus is simply saying in in this first sign, He's like, I am not like that. I am full of grace. And the very thing you go looking for in football or your addiction for that matter are all the good things. Your talents. You want to help the oppressed. You want to help the poor. You want to feel connected to people. You want to feel alive when you watch Netflix or go to... Keisha, what's her name? Keisha, Keisha. I've I've been two years out of the game and I already lost it with you guys. Jesus is saying, I am the source of it all. That's what you're looking for. You're looking for me. I'm the bringer and source of it all. Now here's something to practice uh, as we close. The the next time you really long for something that you know is off limits for you, that you know you should not do, instead of immediately giving yourself to it, if you're that type, if you're an indulger, instead of doing that, or if you're a religious type and slapping your hand and saying, no, I shouldn't do that, sit in that longing and begin to ask the question, 
what is God trying to teach me in this desire of mine about myself and about Him? It is not more holy to say no to your desires if you're not asking that deeper question. That if you don't begin to see that even in your most base desires, there is something of God there. He wants to teach you something about who He is. That's what I think this story is about. Trusting Christ is... uh, I've been walking with Jesus for, I don't know, 16 or 17 years. And I still have horrible, horrible doubts. So I'm not going to sit here and tell you that trusting Christ is is not risky business. It, It is. But it is the only way of life that I have found that will not fill you with regret. Jesus is the bringer and source of joy. And I just want to tell you all before I pray to close, um, I'm so happy to see you in person. And that you are my brothers and sisters. And I'm just happy to have met you because I've only known you through Voxer. (laughs) Let's pray. Father, we do thank you that you sent Jesus to be joy to us. And we ask, Lord, that as we sing, that you would uh, fill us up, even if for a moment, that you would let the clouds part in some of these students' lives. I, I know, I know that all of them have very, very good reasons not to trust you, Lord, because you've allowed some horrible things, some traumatic things in their lives, and you'll continue to allow it. And Lord, that's the test question that we are always presented with. Will we trust you? Will we trust you when it uh, seems very dumb? And so, Lord, give us a faith to believe that these things are true. And I ask that you would be with these students as they think about the future of this ministry, um, that they would be filled with your son, Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Everybody say Amen.